Welcome to the Gamble Conversations. I'm Grant Reher. My guest today is Jesse Eisinger, a senior editor and reporter at ProPublica. Before joining ProPublica, he was a columnist for the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. He's the author of The Chicken Club, Why the Justice Department Fails to Prosecute Executives. In 2011, he won a Pulitzer Prize for national reporting for a series of stories on questionable Wall Street practices that were related to the financial crisis. And on Friday, March 3rd, this Friday, March 3rd at 4 p.m., he'll be giving a talk based on some of his new research titled How the Ultra-Rich Avoid Taxes and Why It Matters for Our Democracy. That'll be in the Maxwell Auditorium at Syracuse University's Maxwell School of Citizenship. And for more information about attending this public event, please go to the Campbell Public Affairs Institute's webpage. Jesse, welcome to the program, and thanks for taking the time to talk with me. Hi, thanks for having me. So um, let me start with with kind of some basic questions about this topic, and I want to break down the problem in, in some ways first. There, there are obviously legal ways to avoid paying taxes that might be open only or mostly to those with high wealth and high incomes. Um, and so there's that, there's that kind of tax avoidance. And then there's just out and out tax fraud. And both of those happen. Um, do you have any sense in any kind of meaningful relative terms of the magnitude of each of those buckets of tax avoidance, if possible? Uh, we do have a sense of legal tax avoidance. It kind of depends on what you're talking about. So classically, there are two ways to think about avoiding taxes. There's something called avoidance, uh, and there's something called evasion. Mm-hmm. And avoidance is typically regarded as legal, um, but perhaps undesirable if you're the federal government or the polity, you want people to pay uh, more taxes um, in a democracy. Uh, And then evasion is something that's illegal in this question of uh, a law enforcement action. Um, And then there's a question, a larger question of when you're avoiding taxes that uh, don't even fall in those buckets. Um, and that's what ProPublica explored in its secret IRS file stories. Mm. Um, that was the main thrust of it, was that we have a system that taxes income, and everybody who works is familiar with this. Their taxes get taken out of their W-2, um, and you can see it in your W-2 every year, um, how much you're, and you really, you, how much you paid, and you really don't have a choice in the matter. Um, and people who work for a living comply with their tax obligations about 99%, and then between 95 and 100% of the time, because uh, it's simply taken out. Um, and then there's the world of the ultra wealth. Um, the billionaire class, and they can avoid taxes with very simple legal means. And the key is to avoid income, which is quite counterintuitive, but there you have it. Avoid income and you avoid taxes. Okay, and I want to delve into that a little bit, but that resonates with some of the other things I've read in addition to your work. Uh, But let's talk about the illegal stuff first, and then we'll then we'll get into that. And and you know, to what to answer these to whatever degree you're familiar with it. But um, has has tax fraud increased? You know, tax evasion. I guess to use your to use the proper term 
Um, has that has that increased in recent years? Do you know? Yeah, the unsatisfying answer is we just don't know. Um, but we do know some things. One of the things we know is that uh, prosecutions of tax fraud have collapsed. Um, and the Internal Revenue Service is in charge of criminal enforcement of the tax code. Um, and then they can't bring charges. They're not prosecutors. And they work with the Department of Justice to bring tax fraud charges. Um, and what we know is that charges from the IRS and the DOJ based on having legal income, but illegal tax schemes to avoid taxes on that legal income, those have collapsed. And one of the reasons is that the priorities of the IRS um, in investigating have changed. They kind of like to attach themselves to already criminal investigate already existing criminal investigations um, like a money laundering investigation or a drug cartel investigation and then they do the tax uh, investigation part of that think of that as kind of the al capone um, aspect of uh, <laughs> tax enforcement um, and that's kind of sexy it's drug cartels um, you also don't have to kind of prove the underlying crime as uh, as it's not as difficult because the the income is not legal, um, and they're very welcomed with open arms because it's often hard to even though uh, you've got this clear crime criminal network in the drug cartel, it's easier to prove uh, tax evasion than to prove knowledge from the capos, um, you know, from the cartel leaders. And, uh, and so tax evasion becomes an attractive charge. So those, uh, those cases exist, and the legal criminal case, tax fraud cases, really collapsed. And uh, one of the biggest case that was based on a legal uh, income case was uh, a venture capitalist named Robert Smith, um, who worked with his funder, who was a software engineer, a Texas um, guy, uh, and they, uh, it was one of the most spectacular tax fraud cases in recent years, um, and what the IRS ended up doing was settling for really chump change with Robert Smith, who's got this very high profile as a African-American donor to um, historically Black uh, universities and colleges um, and uh, other philanthropic uh, gains. And then the he he was going to turn evidence against the venture capitalist who had funded him and the venture capitalist died. And so nobody's going to go to prison for what is largely, you know, we thought of as one of the biggest tax fraud cases in years. What Paul Keel and Jeff Ernsthausen and I found in our secret IRS files is we've got this other layer of what looks like potential tax fraud, um, but isn't prosecuted as such because the IRS has really lost funding. And what we found, we can get into the details on this, is that the wealthy use their hobbies um, as tax shelters um, so they can have fun running a horse farm or flying around in a private jet, um, and they're not pay it, it helps reduce their tax bill. And that could be illegal. It could be uh, something that's audited, but it's not. It's neither because the IRS really uh, doesn't have the wherewithal to do it. Yeah, I do want to get into that. You're listening to the Campbell Conversations on WRVO Public Media. I'm Grant Reher, and I'm speaking with ProPublica reporter and editor Jesse Isinger. Yeah, I do want to get into that. Let me ask you another question, though, about the IRS, since you talked about that at some length. My understanding is that, um, and this may be related to what 
what you just said. Two things popped into my head. First, my understanding is that they they've just been gutted in terms of staff and resources in in recent years, and I think some of that's been uh, for political reasons. I wanted to hear about that. Uh, and 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 secondly, the difference between the uh, the money laundering uh, and uh, drug cartel kind of the attraction of using tax fraud or tax evasion there and the other kinds of cases that one might imagine, it strikes me, in addition to what you said, is that in the latter, you don't have to go after what might otherwise appear as a law-abiding citizen. You get to go after this person you've labeled as a, as being part of a, a, a drug cartel. And I'd imagine exactly. that, that, the, that the blowback would, would be less. But tell me, tell me what's been going on with the IRS in recent years. Is it, has it had a staffing crisis? Absolutely. It's an agency on life support. Um, And really, this kind of accelerated in 2010 when Republicans took over Congress um, in the midterms uh, during Obama's first term. Tea Party, the Tea Party. uh, It was Uh, the Tea Party, exactly. And um, the first thing they did was start to slash the IRS budget. Um, And uh, they continued slashing it uh, up until the Democrats just passed um, in its their recent bill, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, uh, a, a huge um, rehabilitation effort for the IRS, a, a kind of reclamation effort, um, if you will. And uh, in the meantime, in the intervening uh, 12 or 13 years, the budget is down in real dollars, about $2 billion, um, and tens of thousands of employees have left. The IRS has the same number of auditors as it had, literally the same number of auditors that it had in World War II um, when the economy was a tenth of the size it is today. Um, And uh, and audits uh, have really collapsed. Audit rates have collapsed, and particularly of the wealthy and the ultra-wealthy. So audits of the wealthy are down about 80% from the peak. Audits of large corporations are down. Um, It used to be that every large corporation was audited every year, 100% audit rate, and sometimes it was actually over 100% because multiple years are being audited at once. Now it's roughly one in two, so 50% of companies are audited, and that overstates things because the audits are much thinner than they used to be. Um, Of those tens of thousands of employees have left, the ones that left first were the people with the highest skill set who could get jobs elsewhere in the private sector. And so there's been an enormous amount of institutional brain drain uh, at the IRS. And as I say, it's really in, on life support. Um, and today, if you make $500,000 a year, you are less likely to be audited than if you make $20,000 a year. Yeah, I wanted to ask. Yeah, let me ask you about that. I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's an astounding fact. Yeah, and it is it is astonishing. And and somewhere I've read that, in addition to what you've just sketched out in terms of what's happened with the IRS staffing wise and skill set wise, I've also read that part of the reason for that is that it's easier for them to go after someone at that income level and be successful than trying to go after an ultra wealthy because they know right off the bat they're going to get hit with a phalanx of attorneys and the likelihood of them succeeding is just it's it's harder it's much harder to to make the case is is that right that's exactly right you and you read that in 
ProPublica. Oh, okay. Uh, Sorry. Paul, Paul, Paul Keel and I uh, wrote those stories. Well, we wrote a series of stories about the IRS being gutted in 2018 and um, about this differential in the audit rates between uh, the poor, uh, the working poor, and um, the affluent. And, um, and that disproportionately hits uh, African Americans, and the most audited county um, is a uh, largely black county in Mississippi. Um, uh, and the reason for that is that the working poor disproportionately receive the earned income tax credit. And again, Republicans have pounded on the IRS to make sure that there isn't um, EITC fraud. Um, and there's no evidence that there is rampant EITC fraud. Um, certainly, there's no evidence that there's more EITC fraud than there is tax avoidance among the super wealthy. In fact, there's evidence that tax avoidance among the super wealthy is worse. And of course, when a super wealthy person avoids taxes, that's lots of dollars. When a poor person avoids taxes, um, that's very few dollars. So you might look for uh, fraud where the money is, uh, to uh, paraphrase the old Willie Sutton line about robbing <laughs> banks, but um, but they don't do that. And the reason is precisely what you laid out, which is it's much, much easier. You can send a letter. Um, you don't need a skill, uh, a skill set. Um, and to audit an ultra wealthy person requires a team. Often they don't have a team available to do it. Um, it requires sifting through hundreds often um, of business entities. We got a glimpse of this in the failed audit of Donald Trump, where Donald Trump had over 400 entities, separate ent legal entities. Um, they all file up to him and produce income for him, or they produce uh, uh, helpful tax losses that you have to go and see whether the justification is valid for those losses. Uh, they put one person on it, and the one person is drowning, and you have a phalanx of auditors and uh, accountants and lawyers on the other side saying everything is copacetic. Um, and it's just way, way too much for even a substantial team. Um, and so they hardly ever audit partnerships, which the wealthy have um, disproportionately, and they really don't audit the wealthy in any sufficient way that could get at um, what's going on with their taxes. You're listening to the Campbell Conversations on WRVO Public Media. I'm Grant Reher, and I'm talking with Jesse Isinger. He's a reporter and editor at ProPublica, and we've been discussing his recent research on tax avoidance by the wealthy. I wanted to get into the, something you mentioned in the first half of the program about the thing that you really looked into with how the wealthy use activities and other things to just avoid income. We definitely want to get into that. I just wanted to say, though, on the point that you made in talking about the differential in the IRS, you know, looking at lower middle income people versus exceptionally high income people. I can remember I got a letter from the IRS one year saying, um, you know, I owed them a thousand dollars and it turned out that was a mistake and I was able to determine that. But you know, and I'm consider myself well educated, well informed, should be, you know, able to handle that. And it scared the hell out of me. I mean, it just it had an impact that sure. was quite strong. And so, you know, there's complete there's a complete differential about how that experience is going to be felt by people at different income levels. But so let's let's get into this thing though about the ta the, the wealthy avoiding income. Tell us more about about that and why it's so important. Sure. Well, so the ultra wealthy, as I say, they avoid income. Um, and again, that's a very confusing 
confusing concept because average people, normal people, most of the people who are listening to the show right now uh, need income to live. We need income to eat and to house ourselves. Um, and uh, the ultra wealthy don't really need it. Once you get to a billion uh, dollars or tens of billions of dollars, then um, income is really just kind of a nuisance um, because you have to pay taxes on it. So you might as well avoid income to the uh, extent that you can. Certainly what you can do is control the timing of income when you want to take income. Um, and uh, largely that has to do with selling stock and you don't have to sell sometimes and you um, can sell other times. And so instead what uh, the ultra wealthy do is a, it's a coinage from a USC tax uh, professor, it's called buy, borrow, die. And what you do is yeah. you buy or build your asset, you build Amazon, you build Tesla like Elon Musk, um, or you build Berkshire Hathaway like Warren Buffett, and then you borrow against the asset. And there's no evidence that Bezos or Buffett borrows substantial amounts, but Larry Ellison of Oracle and Elon Musk um, of Tesla, those guys have literally borrowed tens of billions of dollars using their assets um, as collateral, using their stock as collateral. Um, you borrow against it, that's tax-free uh, uh, to borrow. Um, you're not taking income. And then when you die, there are a variety of uh, tax loopholes you can get um, into to avoid estate tax with trusts. Um, the best one um, is what happens is when you die, the assets that you bought at, say, a dollar, if it's trading at $10 now, it immediately jumps up to $10 and nobody owes, no, nothing is owed on the $9 of gains that you had. The minute before uh, you died, if you sold that, you'd owe nine, you know, capital gains on $9 of uh, gains. Um, once you die, it steps up. And that, that gain is erased for tax purposes. That's probably the biggest loophole in the tax code. Um, and it's a complete mistake. It's a historical accident um, uh, from a kind of misinterpretation uh, and kind of uh, growth in the code from the 1920s. Um, and so that allows, by bar die allows um, great fortunes to go substantially untaxed. And what you can see is that the average person uh, pays roughly about 15% in federal income tax, um, typical wage earner. And somebody like Warren Buffett, um, who takes very little income and has tens of billions of um, wealth, well, compared to his wealth growth, he pays 10 cents for every $100 he earns compared to our $15 for every $100 um, that the typical person um, earns. And that's because his wealth growth is so substantial in his taxes compared to that wealth growth, which is um, the equivalent of income for a billionaire. It's not what we tax in this country. Um, we don't tax unrealized gains. We don't tax wealth growth. But wealth growth for billionaires is really the way that produces their income, produces that borrowing, produces their ability to increase their wealth through investments, through acquisitions, um, through influencing our politics. That wealth growth is their income. And so you should properly measure it, uh, the tax rate against that wealth growth, which we do. And that's where you get somebody like uh, Buffett paying 10 cents for every $100 in growth. If you've just joined us, you're listening to The Campbell Conversations on WRVO Public Media. And my guest is ProPublica reporter and editor Jesse Isinger. 
Uh, we got about seven minutes left or so, but in what you just told me, all these questions popped into my head. So I want to try to squeeze in maybe about four if I, if I could. So sure. first thing that comes to my mind, and I'm sort of jumping around between possible solutions and exploring the problem with you. But the first thing that pops into my head is, couldn't we kind of solve this in a way simply by taxing wealth? Like, you know, proposals like uh, Elizabeth Warren put forward when she was running for president. I mean, if you just if you just had a tax on wealth, you you wouldn't be able to avoid it by borrowing against it and all that. Your wealth would be your wealth, right? Yeah, absolutely. So there, there are two possible solutions to this. One is to have a kind of tax on the wealth and you have a mountain of wealth and you add it up and then you tax it at 1% or 2%, whatever um, the policy is. And Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have different rates for that. Right. And then the second thing would be to tax unrealized gains, which is um, probably a smarter and more elegant solution. It's one that Ron Wyden, the senator from Oregon, um, advocates, and uh, actually Biden uh, put it, it, it as a proposal in the State of the Union recently, and that was a revisiting of a proposal he's made for a billionaire tax on wealth growth or unrealized gains. It's counterintuitive for many people because they viscerally don't like the idea that, uh, uh, well, if your stock goes up and you haven't sold it, you haven't taken any income, but that's really not a um, the correct way to think about it. It is wealth growth. Growth is income. It's economic income. It's been economists have identified it as income since the 1920s. Um, so it's really not a very controversial idea within the um, economics profession. And um, you can have uh, ways to, there are a lot of objections like, uh, well, what about private holdings? And what if the stock goes down? And you can have right. ways to uh, make it so that you get money back if the stock goes down um, or to estimate what the private uh, wealth is worth. Um, but it probably is the best way to do it, which is to tax unrealized gains. Um, and mostly the stock market goes up. So the losses really aren't such a big deal overall for uh, this class. Yeah, I was thinking immediately of, well, you'd, you'd want to get credit for unrealized losses. And you just you just mentioned that. So, all right. Well, that was one thing that. Uh, uh, another thought that popped into my head was we've been living in recent decades with interest rates that are phenomenally low for borrowing. Now, that's changed in last several months but but or year, but nonetheless, generally, that's been the case. I'm just wondering, would this technique, if we got back into a situation like we had uh, – say in the late 70s early 80s you know where where interest rates were much higher than they are now that technique wouldn't be as attractive then to this ultra wealthy class i mean it's it's a good question uh you know i um maybe we'd have to just wait and see to, uh but i <laughs> think the 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 rich are different than you and me um uh as the famous hemingway uh, fitzgerald exchange has it and right. um, their borrowing is different uh, if you have stock uh, at your brokerage um, it doesn't really cost you anything they they have so much ability to make money on that stock that the borrowing is almost um, almost cost free for these hmm. guys because um, they've got the collateral too so uh, if the stock starts falling they can just sell the collateral out from under you they don't have to worry about getting paid back 
Um, so they're not that worried. So it's incredibly cheap for a, a wealthy person to borrow. They don't borrow at your credit card rate. I got to tell you, um, or even your student loan rate, you know, so, um, uh, so I don't think interest rates are going to affect them that much. Um, okay. and, and the other thing is that even if interest rates went up to seven, eight, nine percent uh, on their borrowing, it's still better than 40%, which is sort of all in roughly what you pay in that top racket um, for income in the United States. So if you were taking ordinary income, you're paying 40%, you know, paying 8%, 9% of the borrowing is, uh, is a good deal for you still. Right. Right, right, and 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 then and then the other thing that popped into my mind too, and you didn't mention this in the things that you listed as devices that get used, but um, I was quite surprised to learn just how favorable the tax code is toward landlords. Um, anybody renting anything out, the way you can depreciate the asset that you're renting, and uh, uh, it's just you know it's it it was it was striking to me when I first. Learn this. Is that a is that a piece of what the ultra wealthy do? It's so extraordinary. Um, we did a whole story on um, there are special breaks um, for real estate owners and oil and gas owners in uh, in the tax code. And what that means is that billionaires who are real estate developers or oil and gas uh, uh, company owners. They can go literally years and years, if not decades, without paying any federal income tax. And Stephen Ross, who developed Hudson Yards in New York City, he owns the Miami Dolphins. He's one of the richest uh, real estate developers in the country, a multi-billion, uh, multi-billionaire. Um, he tells the IRS literally that he has lost $400 million that year, $300 million, another year of a $300 million loss over and over years and years um, for roughly about two decades um, with a couple of exceptions. Um, and he's got, I got to tell you, he's a billionaire. He's not losing $400 million a year. If he were losing $400 million a year, he wouldn't be a billionaire for very much longer. And he'd have to uh, sell the uh, Miami Dolphins and, and live under, uh, you know, bridge eating cat food, but he's not doing that. And the reason he's not doing that is it's just a tax cut break for him. And it's not real losses. He's making a lot of money, but he gets to tell the IRS that he's losing money and therefore he's not paying taxes. Well, this is fascinating, but we're going to have to leave it there. And you'll be talking about these issues at the Maxwell School, but also something we didn't get into is why this is important for democracy and the relationship to our political system. And so we have we have deliberately left that tantalizing piece for people to come and see your talk. That was Jesse Isinger. And again, I want to remind you that on Friday, March 3rd at 4 p.m., he'll be giving a talk based on some of this new research titled How the Ultra-Rich Avoid Taxes and Why It Matters for Our Democracy. It'll be in the Maxwell Auditorium at Syracuse University's Maxwell School of Citizenship. For more information about attending, go to the Campbell Public Affairs Institute's webpage. Jesse, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me and looking forward to your visit. Excellent. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Campbell Conversations on WRBO Public Media, conversations in the public interest. The Campbell Conversations, conversations in the public interest, is hosted and produced by Grant Reher, engineered by Tom Fazio. Assistant producer is Jacqueline Witwicky, and the program is edited by Mark Lefonier. The Campbell Conversations is a joint production of the Campbell Public Affairs Institute at Syracuse University and WRBO Public Media. To learn more about the program and hear previous interviews, visit wbarbio.org slash Campbell Conversations.